This is the second full day of our June 2017 session, practicing the four immeasurables. The four immeasurables are qualities or aspects or attributes of awakened awareness. They are ways in which the body of enlightenment functions naturally. They're not something that we put on the outside. They're something that we call forth from the inside. They are part of our essential nature. No one is lacking them. They are only obscured from functioning in us freely. We see them reflected in the face of the Buddha on the altar and the face of Kanon. One simple practice is to make your face like the face of the Buddha or Kanon. And then let that face reflect inward to the state of your heart-mind. Research actually shows that how we hold our face can affect our inner state. People who have, women who have too much Botox can't move their face muscles and they actually have difficulty expressing emotion, feeling emotion, not just expressing it with their face. So you can try it. Make your face look sad, depressed, and angry. then watch the inner state and see if it changes. What is reflected inwardly by that outward change? Now, get a glimpse of that ugly face and smile at it. And see if the inward reflection changes. We can do the same with words. So the words that we allow to parade through our mind directly affect our inward state, our heart. So you can try it. Say the word no, 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 silently, inwardly, over and over again. No, no, no. Be aware of what happens to the body, what happens to the heart. Now switch to yes, yes, yes. All of these work together, body, heart, and mind, constantly reflecting each other and reflecting off of each other's hearts, bodies, and mind. The immeasurables are called immeasurable because if we practice them diligently, they can lead to an immeasurable mind, 
and immeasurable heart-mind, to a boundless expansion of the field of the heart-mind. This is described in the Pali Canon as a palpable force field. We all have some awareness of force, force fields around humans. If we walk into a room and there's been a fight, even though people aren't talking, we can sense it. Or if we walk into a room and a, and a couple has just been talking lovingly to each other, we can sense it. So loving kindness is described as a palpable force field. And I'm sure you've experienced a small bit of that force field if you've fallen in love. Everything changes. Everything looks different. Everything brightens up. You're in love with the world. You're in love with everyone. Under the power of that force field. So that romantic love becomes something like loving kindness and compassion. when we reflect it outward. And when it doesn't, it spreads outward from this attachment to one person and begins to color everything we see and feel for everyone else. So this force field, as described in the Pali Canon, saved the Buddha's life. And Devadatta was the, the Buddha's cousin And he became very jealous of the Buddha's success in terms of attracting disciples. And he tried three times to kill the Buddha. His third attempt was to make a man-killing elephant, not a giri, drunk with alcohol. And he uh, bribed the elephant keeper to let him out, let this drunk elephant out. And then they wounded the elephant with spears until he was mad with rage. And they let him loose on the street where the Buddha and Ananda were walking into town. And everybody in town ran around wildly seeking shelter. And then the, the story describes them watching out the windows with bated breath some of them betting that the Buddha would be trampled and killed, and some others betting that he would not. Human behavior. And when Nalagiri saw the Buddha coming at a distance, it raised its ears, tail, and trunk, which is a sign that an elephant is going to charge, and then charged at the Buddha. As the elephant came close, Ananda stepped in front of the Buddha to try to shield the Buddha, he was the Buddha's, what we would call Jisha, personal attendant for his life, and uh, was trying to redirect the rogue elements, elephant's attention and anger. But the Buddha directly perceived the terrible suffering of the elephant and radi- radiated loving kindness. And so vast and deep was the Buddha's love that the elephant's pain was relieved. And as it reached the Buddha, it stopped, became completely quiet, and stood still. Then the Buddha stroked Naragiri on its trunk and spoke softly to it. And the elephant then knelt down and picked up some of the dust 
at the feet of the elephant, feet of the Buddha with its trunk, and scattered the dust over its head, a sign of deep respect. And then it retreated, all the while facing the Buddha, also a sign of respect. And weeping in relief, went back to the stable and remained for its, the rest of its life fully tamed. The commentary says usually elephants are tamed with whips and weapons, but the Buddha tamed the elephant with the power of his loving kindness. May we aspire to cultivate loving kindness so that it can affect people in this way, tame us, and maybe tame others who are very troubled or bring relief to others who are in pain. Actually, this uh, technically, in terms of the four measurables, is compassion because the Buddha could see the suffering, see directly, feel the suffering of this other body and mind. Elephants are very intelligent and was so moved that he radiated loving kindness. So compassion is the next immeasurable. It's being moved by the suffering of others, being aware of that suffering and wishing to relieve it. So some of the phrases that we use contain that, contain that wish. May you be free from, may I be free from fear and anxiety, which is a cause of our suffering, maybe the only cause of our suffering. May I be free from fear and anxiety. May you be free from fear and anxiety. But we expand this with compassion practice to include awareness of others' physical and mental difficulties. And so we may be, we might say, may you be free from, in this season, allergies just in case you're worried about catching cold, the people who are sneezing are sneezing because there's a lot of pollen in the air. So every time you hear a sneeze, may you be free from the suffering of allergies. And then that field can spread to anyone who's suffering from allergies. Or when we're suffering from allergies, we can do compassion practice and and much better motivated and well-informed compassion practice, when we're suffering from allergies, we can spread it to everyone who's suffering from allergies. Or when we're suffering from a headache, or a backache, or hip pain, or whatever we're suffering from. Immediately, we can bring in compassion practice and enlarge our wish for the health of our own body and the relief of our own pain to everyone with that condition. We would love to enter that field of loving kindness or compassion fully now and to be able to generate it fully right now. But we can't skip steps. The Tibetan teachers laugh about Americans who begin practice by arriving at the teacher's feet and saying, give me the advanced practice. An essential step with any of these practices is to develop concentration. We can't skip that step. When the Buddha was ready to sit down under the Bodhi tree for his last 
few days or weeks of meditation before he became enlightened, he declared the state of his mind. He said, with my concentrated mind, thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability. So each of these is an aspect of the mind, the heart-mind, to be cultivated. But he said, concentrated mind first. With my concentrated mind thus purified, thus purified through concentration. Concentration helps the mind settle. And as concentration develops, thoughts recede. This is how the mind becomes purified becomes a bright screen of awareness. We call this original mind. When there are very few mind clouds, the underlying truths can peek through. And we have realizations or small openings. It happens frequently in Sashin. The mind clouds disperse and people have realizations. When there are no mind clouds at all, the underlying truth can suddenly erupt like a geyser into the body-mind. We call this Kensho. There are different formulations of the four immeasurables in terms of which is supposed to be practiced first. In some traditions, they say to practice equanimity first and then practice loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. But I find it's hard to practice equanimity until I've practiced loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. Because otherwise, the mind remains perturbed. We're trying to put something on top of something that hasn't been dealt with. Like there's a tendency now that self-compassion work is so popular, there's a tendency to self-soothe when something comes up that really needs to be dealt with, to just plaster a very, a one of the other self-compassion exercises on top of it, which re- works for a while. It's an over-the-counter remedy, and it works for a while. But we have to go deeper and look deeper into what is agitating, what is preventing us from feeling loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy. But some equanimity is important before you begin practicing. So in a way, I agree with the formulation that says equanimity first. That's why we spent the whole first day just settling in, letting the mind gain some aspect of clarity and equanimity before we begin these practices. Then next comes concentration. Concentration and equanimity are paired. Like when the Buddha said, my concentrated mind thus purified. These go together. I always myself begin session with concentration practice, always. And as the years 
have gone on, that that phase isn't as long. It doesn't take three days to settle the mind. But I always do it. It's just like just exactly like breath practice. So here's a general scheme. Because there are many different kinds of practitioners, there are different approaches to concentration. For example, with breath practice, at first it's quite hard to concentrate on the breath. It seems such a simple thing, but we're used to ignoring it. And our focus, we focus on it, and then it, we, it slips away. We focus on it, it slips away again and again. As the mind fills and refills with its habitual thoughts. We have a lifetime full of these habitual thoughts. They don't clear away easily. So we provide various kinds of what are called in Tibetan practice supports. Supports for holding the mind steady on the practice for at least a a little while. So there are audible, what I call audible supports through using an inner voice, which include counting the breath. So you count, maybe we count the breath to 10. That's the classic instruction. If you lose track, start again. But 10 is not a magic number. You could count to two or four. Or if the mind is really distracted, I used to count backwards from 100 by sevens which takes concentration. It's actually part of a neurologic test of the functioning of the mind. So you go 100 minus 7 is 93. 93 minus 7 is 86, and so on. It's a really good way to concentrate. So in the old days, when my mind was really agitated, I used to do that. So we can supply counting words to the mind. It's called substitution practice. So we're substituting chaotic thoughts for simple words. Or we can supply words such as out. This is a three-point support in Tibetan practice. Out, pause, in. Out, pause, in. Some of you have done that with Dan Brown when he taught here. Or the Thich Nhat Hanh practice that I mentioned the first day of breathing in peace and breathing out love. So holding one word like a mantra. A mantra works the same way. One word on the in-breath, peace. Feeling ourselves suffused with peace. And then on the out-breath, sharing that as love. So we can use these words to supplant thoughts. Some people are visual. And they're supported in their concentration on breath by seeing something, internal seeing. So I used to practice, and I've had students who've done this, practice with the breath as a mist a mist that flows out into the room and disperses, mingles with all other breaths, including the wind, the breath of the earth, and then flows back in. 
and then you imagine the body is hollow and that mist, very healthy mist, energizing mist penetrates all of the crooks and crannies of the body. Or Suzuki Roshi used to recommend the practice of the swinging door. So just imagining a swinging door hanging in space. And on the in-breath, it goes this way. And on the out-breath, it goes that way. In-breath. So that's a support for staying with breath practice. Or colors. You could run through the rainbow, a yellow breath, an orange breath, a red breath, purple breath, and so on. I had one, one student a couple of years ago who came in very excited because he was finally able to concentrate on his breath for long periods of time. And he, he was an athlete. And what he did was he would visualize a hockey player on the outbreath, hockey player going around the rink to behind the, the goal. And then that was the pause. And then on the in-breath, the hockey player would emerge and come back to where he was sitting in the stands. And with that visualization, he was able to stay with the breath without intruding thoughts. So there's no magic to any of these. They just help us stay with what is there. Other people are kinesthetic, touch sensitive, and they practice with body sensations to help dispel thoughts. So we give this classic instruction, be aware of the breath wherever you feel it most vividly in your body. So this is a mindfulness-based stress reduction instruction, basic meditation instruction. So do you feel it most vividly in the belly or the chest or at the nostrils? The beauty of this is that it doesn't add anything extra to what's actually going on. Right? It doesn't add words, and it doesn't add visualization. It just brings the mind's awareness to what is actually happening, body sensations. So often they have people begin by lying on the floor, put their hand on their belly. You can do this when you fall asleep. And just become aware of the gentle rise and fall of your hands on your belly. The difficulty with following it at the nostrils, it's very subtle. And also the nostrils are very close to where we perceive we are, the mind, and the mind can get active. But a more common problem is that the mind interferes and then gets us all tied up in knots, muscular knots. So we we feel like, oh, my chest is so tight, or my belly is so tight, or which way is my belly supposed to go? on the in-breath or the out-breath. Now I've got it all mixed up, which is the out-breath supposed to be longer than the in-breath. That's when the mind interferes just with the simple act of breathing, which we do all night long without any worry at all. So we have to pop up into awareness, let the body breathe by itself. It knows quite well how to do that. Get out of the way. The body does better when we get out of the way in general out of the way and let the body breathe and just observe. One one practice describes this, I think it's a Tibetan practice, as sitting at the bedside of someone who is extremely ill, 
and you don't know if they're going to live, and you don't know if each breath is going to be the last breath. So you're paying very close attention to each breath, not with anxiety, but just with care, or like a mother sitting with a child and watching the child sleep, watching each breath. So with breath practice, to get the mind out of the way and pop up into awareness of what we call this body that sits and breathes, what is actually going on? What are the actual sensations that tell us a body is sitting and a body is breathing? And to become extremely interested in each particle of breath, particle after particle after particle, leads us into samadhi. When the practice becomes stabilized, then the supports can be removed. And the mind remains perfectly aligned with the flow of the breath. Without any effort, the mind becomes the breath. There is no separation from the breath. The breath is completely engrossing. Delicate. Sensual, beautiful, particle after particle of flow. And the same applies to loving-kindness practice, the same scheme. So if the mind is busy, saying words inwardly can help replace the chaos of thoughts. So the classic phrases... And I've, I've modified them a little because I feel that fear and anxiety are the pervasive source of suffering in our culture. So may I be free from fear and anxiety. May I be at ease, the balancing phrase. And then the uplift, because the mind tends to sink down. May I be happy. And then if you wish, you can add at the end, may I become enlightened. Or if you're doing it from someone else, for someone else, you can add at the end, may you become enlightened even before me. That's a stretch in loving kindness. May you become enlightened even before me. But for every teacher, that should be their wish. That their students will become more enlightened than they are or become fully enlightened before they do. So we can use those classic phrases as we begin loving-kindness practice as supports. And then we can gradually eliminate the unnecessary words and go down to the basic words. So peace or ease, happiness. So we're back to the kind of breath practice that goes with one word, flows with one word, in and out. And we let, then we can let go of the words once the mind is really concentrated and stabilized. We can let go of the words completely. And then we're just breathing a breath that is flavored with kindness. Or as we move to compassion, flavored with compassion. By the way, you don't have to move to compassion. 
we've done this retreat many times, and some people just do loving-kindness practice the whole time. So you'll hear a talk on compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, but it's fine to stay with loving-kindness. As you saw from the story of Nadagiri, the elephant, you know, they're related. The clearer our vision becomes, the inward eye, the more we're able to see others' suffering, so it automatically arises. So then visualizations work for other people. So I gave you an example of imagining that you're walking down the street and people are flowing towards you, and you just create those people. And you can create the easy ones first, you know, a grandmother pushing a baby in a, in a stroller. Somebody walking their cute little dog. And you do loving kindness to each one. You notice each one and send them loving kindness by whatever method, through the phrases or simple, single words or just breathing kindly towards them. But you're walking down the street in your imagination in a field of loving-kindness, which you wish to share. And then you can create some more, some more difficult people who come towards you and see what happens. And watch what makes the heart close, and then what makes it open again. And then we used a visualization with a person or an animal that you care for in an uncomplicated way, living or dead, and in whose presence you feel simple joy and happiness. So you can expand, or we say cultivate. Cultivation involves feeding plants, right? Cultivate that field in different ways. So we can expand it in directions, the ten directions, not neglecting behind us and below us. Or we can expand it by categories of beings. So in the case of, let's say, let's say you're doing compassion practice, you see a, a dog that's limping. The heart opens. May you be well. May you be restored to health. And then you could expand it to all dogs that are injured, for example. And just in, in Klatskanai and in Portland, and in, so you can add geography to it. Or you can expand it by categories of beings like uh, your mother and father. So if you're sending loving kindness to your mother and father, living or dead, or compassion to them if they're sick, then you can expand it to all mothers and fathers all around the world, and especially those in conditions where they're worried about their children in conditions of war or immigrants who become separated and so on. There's lots of categories, right? Our, the, the, the news tells us. The news calls us to do this practice. This is the antidote for the great distress that the news brings us of the suffering around the world. We have to have this practice because we're bombarded with stories of suffering around the world. And then periodically we get 
become aware of suffering within our own family or our own acquaintances. That's the time to do loving-kindness practice or compassion practice. So we can do loving-kindness practice or compassion practice with visualizations, with words, and also with touch, with body sensations or the body. So loving hands is an example. So right now, practice with loving hands. It's actually nice if you put your hands together, put your two hands together. And practice for a moment with loving touch or loving hands. So if you need support, it might help you to feel that you're holding the hand of a dear friend or a sick relative, someone you love. So loving touch is something we can practice all the time, no matter what we're touching. And loving eyes. And the feelings in the body, when we feel open-hearted and benevolent. So we don't try to generate those feelings. People sometimes get frustrated with loving-kindness practice because they're trying hard to generate feelings of love in their heart. And they can't do it, and then the inner critic comes in, and they feel terrible about themselves, and they can't direct loving-kindness to themselves for feeling terrible about not being able to generate loving-kindness. And it becomes a huge chaotic cycle of distress. So that's why we try to set up a natural situation of loving-kindness and then see, are there any changes or feelings in the body, the face, for example, the eyes, the hands? Where, where do you feel loving-kindness? All of us feel loving-kindness. Where do we feel it? And then once we know where we feel it, then we can grow it. Dogen Zenji said, when you handle water, rice, or anything else, you must have the affectionate and caring concern of a parent raising a child. So that speaks to this loving touch and the loving eyes and the open heart. The classic description of loving kindness practice is how a mother feels when she's pregnant. She hasn't seen the child, but she feels love for this child. The father too, of course. And maybe even the siblings. They're not feeling jealous, in which case they have to listen to talk four. No, talk three. No, yeah, three. So to handle everything, uh, Dogen Zenji gives this instruction all the time, to handle everything with loving hands, loving eyes, loving concern. We want these practices to become our fallback, our default, to become embedded in all of the encounters of our daily life. When we've practiced loving kindness on the cushion for hours with imaginary people on the street, people in long lines at the post office or the grocery store in our imagination, people we're, we're passing here at the monastery, then it's not a problem when the actual situation arises. You won't know its power 
unless you practice with diligence and persistence. This is nothing, not something we can just conjure up in a half an hour of practice or, or five days of practice. We want to get to the point where it will automatically kick in. But we often need reminder signals, and the reminder signals can be the opposite. Irritation, jealousy, a feeling of, you know, we all have these little hidden places in our heart. Well, that person deserves that problem, right? So that's the signal, ah, time to do the practice. I remember long ago we made the mistake of going to Disneyland at Christmas time, on Christmas Day, which don't don't do it. <laughs> so the lines were hugely long. The kids were small, and we're standing in a long, long line, you know, the snaky kind of line, for the Jungle Riverboat ride. And I'm experiencing irritation. And then I just thought, okay, I'm switching my perception. This is a whole line of Buddhas waiting ahead of me. And just switch. We can do that switch. Okay, Buddhas, you first. All of you. I'm happy to wait and just look at you. The the sutra that we chant, affirming faith and mind, says, the meaning does not reside in the words, but a pivotal moment brings it forth. The words, may I be at ease, may I be happy, are not the true meaning. The true meaning is not the words, but the experience. And it comes forth, the meaning comes forth when we feel our heart close, when we're aware of that, and when we do the switch, when we're able to open it again through the blessings of this practice, and again, and again, and again. That's the true meaning. There's an interesting koan. I made a a resolution. I'm going to talk more about koans. This is Mumon Khan, case 35. Sejo and her soul are separated. Master Goso said to his monks, Sejo's soul separated from her being, which was the real Sejo. And this is a reference to an old Chinese story, ghost story, actually. There was once an old, old man whose name was Chokan, and he lost his first daughter, so he was very attached to his second daughter, who was named Sejo. And she was very beautiful, And she had uh, made a best friend in her cousin, who was a boy named Ochu. And the families loved to see these two uh, attractive children playing together. And the children often heard the adults say, the two of you are so perfect together. So they planned to get married. But when they grew older, Chokan, the father, told Sejo that he had arranged a marriage for her with another man. We don't know why, but that is, was, was the custom to make family connections or gain wealth. We don't know why. So Sejo and Ochu were very dismayed, and Ochu became uh, very angry, very sad and very angry. So he got into a boat, and he 
made his way up the Yangtze River. But then he noticed that somebody was run, running alongside the boat on the shore, calling his name. And he looked into the darkness, and it was Seijo. And he was so amazed. So he put her into the boat, and together they journeyed far away, where they became married and lived for years. But Seijo became the mother of two children, and she began feeling homesick and sadness for her father because she could see that if she lost her children, how sad she would feel. And she began feeling regret for leaving her father so abruptly. So she said to her husband, I long to go back to my native village and see my father and beg his forgiveness. And her husband replied, I too feel that way. Let's go. So they got into the boat again, and they went back down the river. But when they got to the village, Sei was, was feeling hesitant about going to see her father. So Ochu, the husband, went to her father first to ask forgiveness and see what the situation was. But the old father listened to Ochu with amazement. What are you talking about? Seiju became sick just after you left, and she's been lying in bed, unable to move or to speak all these years. And Ochu said, no, she followed me. We've been living in another country, and we have two children. And she came with me to ask your forgiveness. So they were both mystified by this. So Ochu went back to the boat to get Seiju and ask her to come to the house. And meanwhile, the father, Chokan, went into the room where his sick daughter was lying unresponsive. And he talked to her about what had happened. And he said, ever since Ochu left, you've been lying here lifeless, as though your soul had fled. But now he's come back. And to his amazement, his daughter then woke up and said, I didn't know I was lying sick in bed. I just heard Ochu's voice, and I followed it. That's all she remembered. And then the Sei from the boat, Seijo from the boat, came into the house, and the Seiju in the bed got up, and the two embraced and melted into one. So this is a ghost story from China. I didn't know I was sick. How does that apply to us? I didn't know I was sick. I followed the voice of another, an other. I followed the voice of the other. But something was missing. What is the voice of the other? And why do we follow it? What did we feel was missing all these years? What is this sickness? In high school, I learned this French poem, which I've always loved. Il pleure dans mon cœur, comme il pleure sur la vie. Quelle est cette langueur qui pénètre mon cœur? In English, it's, it rains in my heart as it rains on the village. What is this dark languor 
that penetrates my heart. It rains in my heart as it rains in the village. What is this deep, dark languor that penetrates my heart? We all know this. We all know this sickness. It is this sickness that brings us to practice. In Zen, we call it eye disease, but we could call it heart disease. It makes our heart sick. This belief, this firm belief in the other, this unattainable other that will somehow make us happy. Unattainable because it lives nowhere else but within us. Closer than our heart, closer than our bones, closer than our blood. It has existed since before our great, great, 100, 1,000 greats grandparents were born. And it will continue undiminished after we die, undiminished by our death, forever and ever. It will continue undiminished no matter when the earth is destroyed, whether it is next year or millions of years from now. By the way, Wikipedia lists 161 dates when there were predictions that people took seriously that the world would end. The record starts in the year 66 AD. For some groups, there were several dates listed because when the world didn't end on the first date, they had to make another prediction. And Wikipedia also lists nine predictions for future dates. Predictions for the Earth's demise based on scientific data are separate. And they range from 500,000 years to 10 duotringentillion years from now. And causes for the Earth's demise range from asteroids, giant volcanic eruptions, loss of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, the Big Rip theory, the moon falling into the Earth and the Earth falling into the, falling into the sun when the sun reaches the red giant phase, and a time when the universe will diminish to a state of no thermodynamic free energy and therefore will no longer sustain motion, which means life. There's a koan actually about this, but that's not for today. Seijo and her soul are separated. Which is the real Seijo? Which is the real you? Which is the real you? Do you feel more like the real you when you've sat for five days? Do you feel more like the real you when you practice loving kindness or compassion? What we have is, in a way, motion sickness. Too much motion, mind motion, which generates an overwhelming perception of separation. It's like a completely engrossive, you know, one of engrossing movies, you know, one of those movies on the huge screen where you're just like, ah, please stop. Just for a second, please calm down the music and the banging and the explosions. And the so it's like a completely engrossive movie on a huge screen, but the screen envelops us completely. And we can't see outside of it, and we haven't seen outside of it since infancy. And the medicine needed for a complete cure is to see through that separation 
the warmth of loving-kindness practice is one way to melt the screen and see what has been obscured but has always been there within us. Dogen Zenji writes of the path of continuous development. Please practice with diligence and continuity until you reach the mind's essential stillness and the heart's essential peace. Thank you. <laughs>